In the late 1800s, John Hyde was a missionary to India, Christian missionary to India, and John Hyde had a bit of a habit of getting on the nerves of other Christians. He kind of annoyed other Christians that worked with him, not because uh, his doctrine was foul or because uh, his personality was not good. He would get on their nerves because he oftentimes was late. You see, John Hyde was given the nickname Praying Hyde, and he was a true prayer warrior. In fact, he would pray so much, he would oftentimes be late. There would be times when he was scheduled to speak at a worship service or at an evangelistic crusade, and he had this habit of being on his knees before the Lord, oftentimes for hours before he would get up to speak. And on more than one occasion, he'd be on his knees praying, and they would start the service, and they did the music and the introductions and everything, and they'd call him up, and he was nowhere to be found. And they'd run backstage somewhere and find John Hyde still on his knees, and they said, you've got to get up, you've got to get up, it's time for you to speak. And he would ignore them and continue praying, because he believed he did not have God's permission to stop praying until the Holy Spirit made it clear in his heart that the season of prayer was to come to an end. So some guy on stage would have to stall until John Hyde was done praying. That got on some nerves. There were times when his uh, fellow workers would go to the train station to pick him up from a trip out of town in India, and they'd be there at the train station, and the train pulls into the station, and everyone gets off that train, and there's no John Hyde. And they come to find out later that he wasn't on that train because he'd gotten onto some other train headed to who knows where, Because someone had come across his path that needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he would stand there or sit with him on that train going who knows where until that person came to a saving knowledge of Christ. So hours or maybe a day or two later, he'd show up at the right train station. He was a prayer warrior, and that kind of got on some people's nerves. Well, I can't help but think that that kind of gave those fellow Christians alongside John Hyde a small taste of how the Pharisees must have felt when they were dealing with Jesus, who said things in a way they normally didn't say them and did things in a way they didn't normally do them. Oftentimes, we as Christians have a very particular idea of how we're supposed to follow Jesus Christ. And sometimes when we step back and look at that, we find that our particular way of following him isn't particularly grounded in Scripture, But it's just the way we've come to believe things should be. That gives us an idea of what the Pharisees were dealing with when they encountered Jesus. They had their particular way of how you were supposed to follow God. And Jesus didn't follow their particulars, did he? Amen. Today's message, we're going to be in Luke chapter 6. I encourage you to turn there. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1. If you don't have your Bible with you today, please grab one of those blue ones from the rack in front of you. You'll find this on page 1020. In the Blue Bibles, the rest of you turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 1. As we dive into today's message, Jesus is Lord and Rabbi. We're used to hearing that phrase, Lord and Savior, but this passage talks about Jesus as Lord and Rabbi. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Say amen if you're there. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, 
Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath day? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. May God bless us as we study his word today. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your time, this is your word, and these are your words spoken in your word. Lord, give us ears to hear and minds, minds and hearts ready to receive what you want to teach us today. Lord, it's no accident that we're in your house today. You knew from the beginning of time that we would be here, and you have a message for us, a fresh, exciting, life-changing message for us today. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we praise you. And it's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So up until verse 17 of Luke chapter 5, we talked about this over the last couple weeks. Up until verse 17 of this prior chapter, Jesus' friends were many and his critics were few. But all of that changed in verse 17 of chapter 5 when the Pharisees and teachers of the law arrived on the scene. Uh, remember that they came from all over Israel, from every town in Israel, even from the capital city of Jerusalem. They all came and they converged upon Capernaum where Jesus was doing the better part of his ministry in those days. And so they converged upon Capernaum and they were there to watch Jesus and they were there to listen to Jesus. And very quickly it became clear that they also came to critique Jesus and it didn't take very long for them to start scheming how they might destroy Jesus. In chapter 5, Jesus' critics grumbled when he forgave the sins of a paralyzed man there in that house, that man who was let down on that mat by his friends through the roof. Then they grumbled about Jesus having dinner with people who they deemed to be the scum of the earth. And then they were grumbling that Jesus and his disciples were eating when the rest of them were fasting and they're having those little stomach pains going on, and Jesus is having a feast. And they didn't like that, so they grumbled about that. Now, before we take a closer look at the Pharisees' next complaint here in chapter 6, I want you to answer a very important question. So far in chapter 5, they had three complaints against Jesus. And basically they were saying, Jesus, you're breaking Jewish law. Three different times. They basically are saying, Jesus, you're breaking the law. So here's the question that's important for us to answer. Was Jesus actually breaking Old Testament law? 
Let's look at the first complaint. That was there in verse 21 of chapter 5. Their complaint basically boiled down to this. Jesus, you're not authorized to forgive sins. So was Jesus breaking an Old Testament law there? The answer is no. He wasn't breaking an Old Testament law. There's nothing in the Old Testament law that said he couldn't do that. But they sure thought there was something wrong with it. How about complaint number two? That's in verse 30 of chapter 5. Jesus, you're not supposed to have dinner with sinners. What are you doing eating with all those tax collectors? You're not supposed to do that. Which Old Testament law was he breaking there? Once again, he wasn't breaking one. There's no Old Testament law that says that someone can't have dinner with people that are messed up but looking for the truth and looking to straighten their lives up. How about complaint number three? That was in verse 33. Uh, The complaint boils down to this. Jesus, you're not supposed to be chowing down on the designated Jewish fasting days, Mondays and Thursdays. You're not supposed to be fasting on those days. Excuse me, you're not supposed to be eating on those days. What Old Testament law was Jesus breaking? Once again, not a single one. So in all three cases, Jesus was not breaking any Old Testament law that God had given. So what was Jesus breaking? He was breaking the traditions of those Pharisees, what we call the oral law, those hundreds upon hundreds of extra laws that in prior centuries had been added to the Old Testament that God had never authorized. They were man-made rules that the Pharisees followed to a T. And so they didn't like it that Jesus was breaking their traditions. They didn't like it that he was breaking these laws that their forefathers had added to the Old Testament that God had never authorized. And so this really chapped their hide that Jesus was breaking their traditions. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were getting tired of confronting Jesus. Time and time again, they've been confronting Jesus. And every time they confronted him, he was able to stand up and defend himself so well. And those Pharisees and teachers of the law kept on having egg on their faces. And so as we get into chapter 6, just kind of keep that in mind, that these critics of Jesus up to this point had egg in their faces. Because they couldn't stand up to Jesus' truth from Scripture or the authority with which he spoke. They couldn't stand up to it. So as they get into chapter 6 here, and they're going to come up with their next complaint, they need to step up their game a little bit. And so what they're going to try to do is watch Jesus like a hawk and come up with some way that Jesus is actually breaking not just the traditions of their forefathers, but actually breaking Old Testament law. So if they bring an accusation against Jesus in a court of law, that accusation will stand up in court. And so they're looking for something more solid in chapter 6. That's where we read in verses 1 and 2. One Sabbath day, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Uh, Do you get the impression that These Pharisees are sticking to Jesus like bees on honey. Imagine this. Jesus is walking somewhere on the Sabbath day. We're not told in Luke. By the way, this is also shared with us in Matthew and Mark. So you have three different places in the Gospels where this same story is shared with us. And you look at all three of those accounts of Jesus and his disciples walking through the grain fields on this specific Sabbath day. There's no indication that they're headed anywhere important. 
They're just walking, maybe to synagogue, maybe from synagogue. They're not going anywhere particularly important. But the Pharisees are following behind, and they're, they're watching Jesus' every move. He's not going anywhere special, but they're watching him like a hawk. They're hanging on his every word. They're scrutinizing every movement he and his disciples make, trying to find some accusation against him that will hold up in a court of law. So they're watching him closely, and they say, Aha, we caught you doing something. Your disciples are clearly breaking the law. They're working on the Sabbath day. And we look at that and say, huh? How are they working on the Sabbath day? You guys are breaking God's Sabbath law by grabbing that grain and chowing down on the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to do that. Well, that's kind of a obsessive, compulsive way to look at the fourth commandment, isn't it? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Well, remember these hundreds of oral traditions that they had added to the Old Testament law said a lot about what you are and aren't supposed to do on the Sabbath day. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Uh, The Mishnah is that Jewish collection of that oral law, those traditions of the elders, those hundreds of extra rules. The Mishnah was written sometime around the 3rd or 4th century, so a few hundred years after Jesus walked the earth. And the Mishnah is a collection of all of those rules that the Pharisees in Jesus' day followed. And in the Mishnah, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, there are 24 chapters devoted just to the Sabbath day. Imagine that, 24 chapters on what you can and can't do on the Sabbath day. So these guys, sometimes you come across someone that's obsessive, compulsive, they're always washing their hands. You know, they have to iron every wrinkle after, uh, out of every shirt. and You know, every, whatever that thing may be that we look at and say, man, that person's OCD. We would be looking at the Pharisees in Jesus' day and say, man, these guys are OCD when it comes to the Sabbath day. These guys split hairs over everything. 24 chapters on the do's and do nots of the Sabbath day when God's law in the Old Testament was quite simple. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. On six days you shall work. On the seventh day you shall rest. It's a day for rest, number one. It's a day for worship, number two. And it's a day for doing God's work, number three. That's it. That's the Old Testament teaching. Rest, don't do your normal work. You worship and you do some of God's work. Pretty simple, but then they make 24 chapters out of it. And so here they are saying, Jesus, you and your disciples are doing what is unlawful. Well, what were they doing that was unlawful? Was it unlawful to go through some guy's field and pick heads of grain off when they didn't belong to you. Was that stealing? Is that what they're getting at? No, because it spells out in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, that if you're walking through a neighbor's grain field, you can pick off heads of grain and you can eat that. That's okay. If you're walking through a neighbor's vineyard, you can pick off grapes and eat them. The only rules were if you're walking through a grain field, you can't take a sickle to it. God says you can't go through with your wheelbarrow or go through with your tractor and, you know, take enough to feed your family for a week. But if you're just snacking on it as you're walking through, no problem. You can't have a big basket to put your neighbor's grapes in because that's feeding your whole family later that day. But if you're just snacking off the grapes as you're walking through the vineyard, no problem. No fences in Israel in those days. You were able to walk through neighbor's fields and help yourself to some snacks of what they were growing. And so this wasn't breaking the law. What they thought was breaking the law was that they were actually working on the Sabbath. Because there in the Mishnah, we discovered that the Pharisees had these rules about working on the Sabbath day. They said, you are not allowed to reap on the Sabbath day. 
They had laws against reaping. On top of that, they had laws against threshing. On top of that, they had laws against winnowing. And on top of that, they had rules against preparing food on the Sabbath day. So when Jesus' followers were pulling heads of grain off the stem, the Pharisees said, Aha! You're reaping! Because you're pulling it off the stem on the Sabbath day. But they didn't stop there. Once they had pulled it off the stem, they were rubbing the heads of grain in their hands to separate the chaff from the seed. And they said, Aha! Not only are you reaping, now you're threshing. And as they separated the wheat from the chaff, what would they do next? Naturally, they would blow the chaff away so only kernels are left in their hand. And so the Pharisees would say, Aha, you're winnowing. And once they had the kernels in their hand, they would put those to their mouth and they'd say, Aha, you're preparing food. You've broken four laws. You're threshing, you're reaping, you're winnowing, and you're preparing food. Does it sound like craziness to you? But that was their mentality. Sounds a little ridiculous to us because it really was ridiculous. Look at verses 3 and 4 again here in chapter 5. Excuse me, in chapter 6. Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. And Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. Instead of telling the Pharisees to take a flying leap, which probably is what I would have done, get out of here. No, he doesn't tell them off. Instead of doing that, he simply asks them, haven't you heard what your great hero from the Old Testament, King David, did when he was running from Saul? Uh, If you want to see that story, you can go back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, and it's a wonderful account where uh, David is running from Saul. Saul has already been throwing spears at David in the palace, so David wises up and says, you know what, I don't think the guy likes me. I better run for my life, and that's what he does for a number of years, running from Saul who wanted to kill him because of his jealousy. And so as he's running away, he didn't have enough time to pack enough food to last him a while, so he goes to this certain tabernacle there, and he talks to the priest Ahimelech, and he asks Ahimelech, do you have any food? Because I'm getting really hungry, and my companions with me are getting hungry. And remember what Ahimelech tells him, the only food I have around here is the bread of the presence. It's called the bread of the presence because the bread in the tabernacle symbolized God himself. There's a photo we'll put up here for you. It's that showbread that was in the holy place, the first room in the tabernacle. When the temple was built, it was also in the first room of the temple. And on this gold table of showbread, or the, uh, they would put the bread of the presence. Notice there's stacks of bread. There's six pieces of unleavened bread in each of those two stacks, total of 12, representing 12 tribes of Israel. And so they would take the, these, this bread and they would get rid of it every Sabbath day and they would get it to the priests. Uh, The priests were the only ones allowed to eat it. And on that new Sabbath day, they would put fresh bread down that would be there for another week. And so every week they would cycle out the the old bread with some new bread, these loaves. And so he had some of this. Probably the priests had been snacking on a little bit of it, but maybe he had four, five, six loaves left. And he says, here, David, you're welcome to this. Technically, David, being a non-priest, was not supposed to eat from the bread of the presence. Because the letter of the law said it was only for the priests. But for, for centuries, the priest understood 
that it was their bread to use as they saw fit. And so priests would, if someone was hungry and starving, sometimes give them some of that bread because they understood that not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law is, it is not okay for a priest to stuff his face if a brother is dying, standing right next to him, dying of hunger. And so priests understood the spirit of the law, you take care of the one in need. And so what this priest was doing, uh, Ahimelech, was right in line with the spirit of God's law. So David uh, is a great example that Jesus points to here. He says, don't you know this story? Of course they knew that story. But they didn't want to think about that story because they were too busy blaming Jesus for something that he didn't do wrong. So this bread of the presence is the example that Jesus points to. He wanted his critics to know that in the same way it would not be right for his followers to go hungry because he was splitting hairs about what does and doesn't constitute work on the Sabbath day. And Jesus ended uh, the conversation with this bottom line statement. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus was saying, and I'm realizing that uh, this is not great English in the way I'm wording this, but I couldn't control myself when I came up with this wording because I think it just drives the point home so well. Here it is. The Sabbath day is not the boss of me. Ever have your kids say that? You're not the boss of me. When they say that to their parents, it's like, you want to bet? But they love to say it to their brothers and sisters. But follow me on this. The Sabbath day is not the boss of me. I am the boss of the Sabbath day. So if I tell my followers they can pick some grain on the Sabbath while we're on our way to worship God or to do His work, then my followers can do it. You see, I don't exist to bring the Sabbath day glory. The Sabbath day exists to bring me glory. You think that comment may have made Jesus' critics just a little bit upset? No doubt about it. Beginning in verse 6, Luke fast-forwards to another Sabbath day when Jesus' critics were watching him like a hawk and they were trying to catch him once again in some legal infraction on This occasion, Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, and there was a man there who had his right hand that was shriveled. Once again, we find this account in two other Gospels, in Matthew and Mark. Interestingly, it's only Luke that mentions that it was the man's right hand. Matthew and Mark just mentioned that he had a hand that was shriveled. So why would Luke mention it's his right hand? Remember, he's a doctor, and when it came to physical ailments, he tended to give more detail coming from a medical perspective than the other writers did. So this man has a shriveled right hand, so Luke probably wants us to understand that it was the man's dominant hand. Now, there's an extra biblical book, uh, one that is is not considered scripture, that is kind of questionable in some of its history. But in that particular book, it says that this man's hand was injured because he was a stonemason and his hand had been crushed. Okay, so that's an extra biblical source. We don't know how accurate that is. But if that is true, that this man had crushed his hand somehow as a stonemason, then by Luke pointing out that it was his right hand, he was basically telling us his dominant hand was no longer able to be used to earn a living. And so this man, all he could do is resort to begging because his dominant hand no longer functioned properly. And so you can imagine this man in the synagogue this day desperately wanted to be healed so he could get back to work. 
And so here he is with his shriveled hand in this, uh, in this synagogue. And, and he, I don't know if he was a plant or not, if, if the Pharisees had brought him in specifically to put Jesus to the test and try to catch him in breaking the Sabbath. There's no way we can know for sure. But one way or another, this man came into the synagogue that day. The Pharisees knew he was in the synagogue. Jesus and everyone else knew he was in the synagogue. And they wanted to see, will Jesus heal this man on the Sabbath day? If he does, clearly that should be defined as work. And we can say Jesus broke the fourth commandment. Well, they were looking for a reason to accuse him, we read in verse 7. The oral traditions regarding healing on the Sabbath day were very clear. We talked about these in past weeks as well. Remember those extra Sabbath laws? Remember they could put a Band-Aid on someone's injury on the Sabbath day, but you couldn't put any Neosporin on that Band-Aid. Uh, You could stop the bleeding, but you couldn't help that person get better. The only exception to that would be if someone was dying on the Sabbath day, you could treat them. But if it wasn't life-threatening, they would have to be patient and wait until Sunday to be healed. And so here's this man with the shriveled hand. Let me ask you, is this a life-threatening illness? No. So from the Pharisee standpoint, they would be saying, Jesus, this condition is not life-threatening. This man needs to be patient. If he's going to be healed, he needs to wait until Sunday to be healed. Jesus, you need to be patient. If you're going to heal this guy, you need to wait 12 to 24 hours to heal this guy. It's not killing him. He can wait until tomorrow. Let's see if Jesus jumps the gun and is impatient here. So what did the Lord of the Sabbath do? Well, he figured if he was going to heal the man, he might as well do it in front of everyone and teach an important lesson in the process. Jesus calls the man forward to stand in plain view of everyone. And Jesus asks the crowd, specifically the Pharisees and teachers of the law in the crowd, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? Now, I love what Jesus does here because the Pharisees had some questions right then and there for Jesus, didn't they? So Jesus, in essence, does a a presumptive, what is the word I'm looking for? Preemptive strike. That's the word. He does a preemptive strike. Instead of waiting for them to ask a loaded question, Jesus jumps the gun and asks his own loaded question. That's pretty cool, I think. Because this is not the question the Pharisees would have asked if everyone in the room was listening to them. The question they may have asked would have been, uh, Jesus... Is it okay to ignore God's laws about working on the Sabbath day? And they'd rub their hands together and say, he can't answer this one right. Is it okay to ignore God's laws? Maybe they would have asked it this way. Are you so impatient that you can't wait a few hours to heal this man? Those would have been the questions they would have asked. But Jesus does a preemptive strike and he asks this question, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do evil, to save life or destroy it? Is that not a loaded question? There's no way they could answer that question in the negative. Simple answer, of course the Sabbath day is for doing good. Of course the Sabbath day is for saving life and not destroying it. And so they're mumbling under their breasts. They're upset. I can't believe he asked this question and we can't answer it properly. It kind of reminded me as they staged this thing on the Sabbath day with this man with a shriveled hand. It reminded me of Daniel. Remember what they said about Daniel, those guys that wanted him dead in the Babylonian kingdom? They said, there is no way that we can catch him in breaking the law unless it has something to do with his worship of the holy God. 
unless we can catch him somehow doing something as a follower of Almighty God that is against our law, we're not going to be able to accuse him of anything. So that's when they drummed up this law about, okay, for 30 days you have to bow down to the king of Babylon and him alone. And that's when they caught Daniel. They had that stake out and they saw him praying to God just like he always had been doing. Much the same thing here. They've been looking for a reason to, ex- to accuse Jesus. They had this stake out. Maybe this guy was a plant and they were ready to accuse Jesus. Well, the Pharisees couldn't answer uh, Jesus' question in the negative. It says, is it right to do good? Is it, is it right to save life or destroy it? And then Jesus looks around and no one is bold enough to challenge him on that question. And so what does Jesus do? He tells the man, stretch out your hand. And so this man with his shriveled hand, whether it had been crushed in some sort of works accident or or maybe some sort of disease, we don't know for sure, but this shriveled hand, as Jesus said, stretch it out. For the first time in a long time, this man's hand suddenly was able to extend, and he had full use of every finger. What a miracle. And so everybody's jaw is dropping. They can't believe what they've just seen. Verse 11. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law were furious. Everybody's celebrating, except for the killjoys in the room. They're furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. In other words, for the first time, the Pharisees and teachers of the law put every option on the table of what they can do about Jesus. And for the first time, one of those options is to kill him. And it wouldn't take very long with all of those options on the table for the Pharisees and teachers of the law to zero in on only one option that they saw as viable, that one option to kill him. And very soon that would be the one option they gravitate to. And with all their being, they focus on killing Jesus, whatever it takes. Well, we pick up in verse 12. Luke changes gears just a little bit, but it's a marvelous little passage here. Luke 6, verse 12. As one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Once again, Luke highlights how vital prayer was to Jesus' ministry. During his three and a half years of active ministry, this here was one of the most important decisions that Jesus Christ ever made. The decision of which twelve of his thousands of followers which 12 would be his chosen apostles? A couple words to make sure we understand. The word disciple referred to anyone who followed Jesus. And the word disciple simply means a learner or a student. So these were learners who followed Jesus to learn what he had to teach. And then apostle, these 12 were designated apostles. That's a little bit more narrow term. It means one who is sent out as an ambassador. And so we have these ambassadors sent out by the President of the United States around the world today. They are individuals trained and selected to represent our President in his interest and the country's interests around the world. Much the same thing with the apostles. Twelve men trained, appointed, chosen to represent Jesus around the world. 
Uh, the story goes that there was a little girl who went to Sunday school uh, one Sunday, and uh, she learned about the 12 apostles. And she went home that afternoon, and mom asked her what she learned about at church. And she says, well, in Sunday school, we learned about the 12 samples. And you think about that, that's not a bad description of an apostle, is it? They were the 12 samples. Everywhere they went, they were a sample of Jesus. They gave a sample of his teaching. They gave a sample of his miracle-working ability. And when Jesus went back to heaven, these 12 samples, or at least 11 of the 12, because one was hanging from a tree, 11 of the 12 were samples of Jesus all around the world spreading Christianity to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so these 12 samples were chosen by Jesus. Now, a couple things I want you to know about these 12 apostles. Number one, they were ordinary men. They, they were just ordinary men. None of them was famous. Not a single one had royal blood running through his veins. Not a single one had a seminary degree. As best as we can tell, there wasn't a single apostle who was wealthy had a super high IQ, or was Mr. Influence. In fact, all 12 of these guys, I think it's safe to say that none of them were in the who's who among college students in Israel because they would have never gone to college. If they had high school back then, they probably never would have gone to high school. These were ordinary guys, by no means extraordinary. The second thing I want you to notice about these 12 is that they were a strange mixture of men. They really were. A strange mixture of men. One of the commentaries I was looking at this last week pointed out this little tidbit. I hadn't really thought of this before. So look at just two of these 12 apostles. On one hand, you've got the tax collector Matthew. Remember we talked about tax collectors in chapter 4. A tax collector was basically a traitor to Israel. Quite likely he had sold his ancestral land in Israel so that he could afford that tax collector booth to be a sellout to Rome and make money and rip his own people off. And so here Matthew is as a sellout, one who turned his back on Israel, that was viewed by people as a traitor to the country, who would never be allowed in a Jewish synagogue because they saw him as a traitor. And you put him together with Simon the Zealot. A zealot was a Jewish nationalist. And not just a Jewish nationalist, a militant nationalist. Oftentimes those zealots, whenever they got the opportunity, would kill any Roman that they saw. And would just as soon kill any sellout to Rome that they saw. And so imagine this. You've got a militant Jewish nationalist on the same team as a guy who is a sellout to Rome and has turned his back on Israel. And Jesus thrust them together as two of his twelve apostles. I bet they had some exciting moments at the dinner table. And then Jesus throws in no fewer than four fishermen. And he he throws in uh, Nathaniel, who was a guy that just kind of told it like it is and spoke his mind, probably got himself in some hot water over that. Jesus throws in doubting Thomas, that you couldn't convince of something unless it was right in front of his eyes. And then Jesus throws in a thief who would go on to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He thrusts these strange, ordinary guys together into this odd group of 12 apostles and anyone that looked at any of these 12 would probably shake their heads and say this is not a who's who type of man 
And as they looked at all 12 of them together, they would probably say, this is the most dysfunctional group I've ever seen in my life. But when they're under the leadership of Jesus Christ, 11 of those 12 men went on to change the world. Remarkable what Jesus can do with strange, ordinary men and women. I want to give you four insightful quotes that I came across in my studies. And normally I'll just paraphrase quotes that I like and share them with you as a poignant statement. But these I think were all so good. I want to share these with you. All four have to do with the first part of our passage today. Uh, the passage of Jesus in the eyes of the Pharisees dishonoring the Sabbath day on the first account when they were picking heads of grain. And the second when he healed this man with a shriveled hand in the synagogue. And these four insightful quotes, I just really hope, will touch you as they touched me this last week. Number one is a quote by Warren Wiersbe. He writes, Pharisees had turned the Sabbath day into a burden instead of the blessing God meant it to be. And Jesus challenged both their doctrine and their authority. I want you to think of those two words in this quote, burden and blessing. And I got to thinking about this and began wondering if I myself at times have made the day of worship, the Lord's Day, more of a burden than a blessing. And I definitely believe at times I have. I mentioned to you earlier that the Sabbath day boils down to these three simple things. And most of us as Christians believe that our Sabbath day is Sunday. Uh, many Christians still believe it should be Saturday, the Seventh-day Adventists and the Seventh-day Baptists are a couple examples of churches that believe that and if they believe that that's fine but i think jesus's main point is that one day that's set aside for him we need to make sure there's three things as a part of that day number one we need to rest from our everyday work number two we need to be together in worship with other believers and number three we need to do christ's work it's quite simple but so often i feel like i've made it a burden at times and, oh, man, we've got to go to church, or, oh, we've got to do this, or we've got to do that. Jesus never intended it to be that way. He wanted the Sabbath day to be a blessing. I hope that you're excited when you get to come to church on a Sunday morning. And I know sometimes with kids, it's hard to get them out of bed. They want to sleep in because they're tired from the week. And, oh, man, I've got to get up early at 9 a.m. <laughs> they want to sleep in till noon or whatever, I guess, but... You know, sometimes it's hard with the kids. I encourage you, parents and grandparents, to look for ways to make the Sabbath day a blessing to your little ones. Help them to develop a love for the Sabbath day at a young age. And I think it's a wonderful thing when you get to go home from a worship service on a Sunday afternoon and enjoy one of God's most wonderful creations, a little something I like to call a nap. Did you know it's okay on a cooler day like this to go home after church and you kick your feet up in the recliner chair and you put the nice cozy blanket over you and you just take a nice nap? That's okay. The Sabbath day was created as a day of blessing so you can rest from your work and be recharged for the next day. So many of us, like me, I can be a workaholic at times and I'm working seven days a week and I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and I'm working up till a, a Sunday, and then I'm working on Sunday, and then my day off is Monday, and I'm working on Monday. And believe me, I fail at this a lot. But God wants us to rest on the Sabbath day. He wants us to worship on the Sabbath day. He wants us to do His work on the Sabbath day. It's a blessing. 
It's not a burden. Second quotes from William Barclay. It is possible to read Scripture meticulously, to know the Bible inside out from cover to cover, to be able to quote it verbatim and to pass any examination on it, and yet completely miss its real meaning. Why did the Pharisees miss the meaning? And why do we so often miss it? Good question. Good question. Some of us are very good at biblical trivia. I've in the past, I haven't tried it recently, but in the past I was able to speak every one of the 66 books of the Bible in one breath. And I just rattle it out. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, first example, first example, first Chronicles, all the way to Revelation, spitting it out. And man, I'm, I'm good at knowing the books of the Bible. I can tell you Ezra is right before Nehemiah. I can tell you the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. I can tell you that there's six chapters in First Timothy. I can tell you there's 28 in Matthew, 28 in Acts. I can tell you there's 22 in Revelation and trivia just like that. But he asked the question, which is a very valid question. I know all the facts and trivia, but do I understand what God is saying through all of it? And we have the case of the Pharisees. They knew those 613 laws of Moses like the back of their hands and those hundreds of extra laws that their forefathers had added to the Old Testament, they knew those like the back of their hand, but they had somehow missed the meaning of it all. That the Sabbath day was to be a blessing and not a burden. That God desired mercy even more than He desired sacrifice. That God's greatest command was to love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourselves. And somehow they couldn't wrap their minds and hearts around the reality that right in front of their eyes is a man who was not able to support his family because his dominant hand was crushed. And Jesus had miraculously given that man back what had been taken from him. And the very next day he could get back to the work site and support his family, something he dreamed of doing for months, maybe for years. And somehow they couldn't grasp what was right in front of them. And all they could worry about was they had egg in their faces and that the letter of the law had been broken. I want to say to you today, and I think I can say this in good conscience before God, if you are on your way to church on a Sunday morning and there is someone stranded on the side of the road, you certainly have my permission to stop and help them. If you are scheduled to work in the nursery or scheduled to teach that day or scheduled to come up and preach the sermon even, and God puts something right in your path and He says, this is my work for you in this moment, you follow the Holy Spirit, you do not follow me. When the Holy Spirit leads you to do His work, you stop and do it. And it may inconvenience some Christians, it may inconvenience me. But we have to follow the Spirit of God's law and not be such sticklers with the letter that we flush the baby with the bathwater. William Barclay gives another quote I want to share with you. They did not bring to Scripture an open mind. They come to Scripture not to learn God's will, but to find proof texts to buttress up their own ideas. When we read Scripture, we must say not, Listen, Lord, for thy servant is speaking. But speak, Lord, for thy servant is listening. This one is so critical for our day and age. When we have so many Christian pastors and so many teachers out there that take their ideas of Christianity 
and they force them upon the Bible. Or they take their ideas of Christianity and they search high and low from Genesis to Revelation, trying to find even one verse or even one phrase in one verse that somehow can be taken out of context to buttress up their own false teaching. God says, no, 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 no. That's not what we're called to do. We go to Scripture with an open mind and an open heart and say, God, you teach me. If someone needs to be listening here, God, it needs to be me doing the listening to what you want to say, not me saying, God, you shut up and listen to what I want to say. How presumptuous we are at times. And I think our nation, if revival is going to come to America, desperately needs pulpits that are filled with pastors and teachers who speak God's word even when it hurts, even when it flies in the face of our cultural understanding of right and wrong, even when we don't like it, even when it makes us feel uncomfortable. It's God's word, and we come listening, not saying, God, I'm going to start talking, and you listen to me. Wise words. We don't say, Lord, listen, for your servant is speaking. We say, Lord, speak. For thy servant is listening. Finally, a quote from Matthew Henry, quoted back probably some 200 years ago. When the Pharisees could not prevent his working this miracle, they communed one with another what they might do to run Jesus down. We may stand amazed at it that the sons of men should be so wicked as to do thus, and also that the Son of God should be so patient as to suffer it. I thought that was a great way to end this message. We shake our heads in amazement that these Pharisees could be so cruel, so dense, so horrible that they would try to kill Jesus when he was doing exactly what God the Father had asked him to do. But in our focus on the Pharisees' mistakes, I don't want us to miss focusing on the grace that endured their sin. The grace that eventually would endure they're spitting in his face. The grace that would endure those Roman soldiers who would nail him to the cross and his grace that would endure you and me when we fail him time and time again. Our Lord has an amazing, amazing grace. And we need to marvel at how he patiently endured the Pharisees, how he patiently endures you and me, We serve an awesome Savior. His patience knows no limits. His love and His mercy and His grace are absolutely amazing. Father, we come to You in Jesus' name and we thank You for allowing us to study Your Word today. Shape us and mold us. Lord, help us not just to follow the letter of Your law, but but in the process miss the meaning. We don't want to miss the meaning. Lord, we want to live out, yes, the letter, but also the spirit of the law. Lord, we want to have grace as you had grace. We want to have mercy as you had mercy. Lord, we want to rest when you say rest. We want to work when you say work. And we want to be a blessing when you say be a blessing. Help us, Lord, to do that. And, Lord, to be your little samples in our homes in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and in our schools. Help us to be little samples of you, sharing your mercy and love and grace and forgiveness with those around us. In Jesus' name.
go ahead and stand right now as our praise team comes up. And if you need prayer today, we're here to pray with you. If you have a decision to make for Christ, we'd love to talk to you about how you can make that decision today. As we go into this time of invitation, you come. If you have a decision or prayer need today.